I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Our prayer tonight will be given by Sean McCraney, and, uh, and then we'll talk. Lord, we love you and seek you and need you. Uh, we recognize your existence, need you, and, um, and pray your spirit to be with our volunteers and our helpers and people who are watching, whether here or online or in the archives. We uh, praise your name, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember, we have several books for your learning experience available at www.hotm.tv. Our newest is called Knife to a Gunfight. Pretend I'm holding it up. And uh, we hope you'll consider its contents. It's available at the bookstore on the website. Additionally, we're producing a stage play called Sorrow here in Salt Lake City. If you know anyone who's interested in play production or acting, Take a look at this. information on auditions which are coming up at the end of this month go to alatheastage.com a-l-a-t-h-e-a stage.com also uh, campus produces another show called uh, breaking bread with Warren Puckett you can access that by going to breakingbread.tv B bread just then just the letter B just the letter B bread. So it's BB red. B bread dot TV. But uh, Warren and his wife are both former LDS people who came to know the Lord, have a true heart for him. And uh, just take a look at this clip. I would like to take this moment at this time because <clears throat> I know from personal experience the effects that suicide has on, on families and on individuals who have uh, had loved ones or people to commit that act out of hopelessness and desperation and out of a place where they're just, they don't see any hope. 
is one that I would like to address for those who are in a desperate situation. It could be that you are a young gay Mormon that is still under the control and supervision of your parents. I would say to you, and I don't want to read this, I would say to you, Jesus loves you. He died for you. <clears throat> and he accepts you. He wants to be in relationship with you. Don't let this religion come between you and him. Don't let any religion or any pastor, preacher, or any doctrine come between you and the relationship that Jesus wants to have with you. His grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is sufficient for you. You may be someone who could care less either way, because deep down inside, you really don't believe in anything. And all of it is bunk to you. That if that is you, God's grace is sufficient for you, my friend. God's grace was sufficient for me. A man who was at a hopeless position, uh, situation. I was desperate. I was, I was in a situation where I was going to lose my marriage. I was going to lose my family. I was going to lose everything. I'd already lost a brother. And then I lost my faith in the Mormon religion, which I grew up in. But God had other plans for Warren Puckett. And it's not because he loves me any more than he loves you. It is because the grace of God found its way in my heart. I opened up and I received what God was freely and willing to give. It is the grace of God, friends. It is the grace of God. It is not after all you can do. It is not how many times you make it to the temple. It is not how many times you resist saying a cuss word or doing whatever it is that you do. It is a relationship that you have with God that will change your heart and will change your life in the process. And that will enable you to have God's righteousness working out of you. You're not working for anything. You've chosen him because he chose you first. I pray that the, if you are LDS, that you will consider these things. Breaking bread with Warren Puckett. Warren, obviously, he has a great love for the Lord, and he is a uh, promoter of the grace of God, obviously. You can go to, uh, to HOTM.TV and see Warren's show, weekly show there on the front page. Just scroll down, and you'll see a box to click on that. But you can also go to Be Bread. Uh, uh, .tv, bbread.tv and watch him. I hope that clip goes, I hope, you know, I know some people who do TV, uh, internet videos and uh, they'll say, I've got, you know, 15,000 uh, hits. They'll tell me, hey, I'm up to 37 on this one and stuff. I hope that gets a hit, full view from every homosexual in America, in the world. I hope that that clip gets that view from every single homosexual in the world. In fact, it should go on YouTube as homosexuals watch this because it's a message of hope. It's a message that takes the, 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 the sin nature and the, and the act and sets it aside and brings in the solution, which is Jesus. I really do. I hope he gets a billion, a trillion hits. Uh, if there's that many homosexuals in the world, of course, we also support our brother, uh, Bishop Earl and his ministry, Ex-Mormon Files. He can be seen on Roku, and that's at www.exmormonfiles.com.
TV. Got this question from Carlos in Arizona, and it's a good one. Quote, thank you uh, addressing my previous question on the air. I'm sorry uh, harping on this subject. I went through your series on total reconciliation again, and I did not find an answer to another issue. Matthew 25, 46 has everlasting punishment and life eternal. Both use Ionus, okay? Everlasting punishment is Ionus, and eternal life is Ionus, okay? So Ionus is used for both. If we are saying it's a limited time frame for one, meaning hell, why is the other not so, meaning eternal life? Not that I'm advocating for non-eternal heaven, but it would seem to work out like this if Ionos is only a verb of aeon and not meaning everlasting. Please help me. So here are my thoughts. It's an excellent question because it reflects one of the main arguments in support of endless eternal punishment. And this is how it works. People say, do you believe that we have eternal life by grace through faith? And a Christian will say, yes, I do. That's what the Bible says. And then they will say something like, well, the word for eternal, as in eternal life, is the same word for eternal punishment, Ionus. And if so, you believe that there is an eternal afterlife waiting for the faithful, then it, it would be intellectually dishonest to believe that there's not an eternal punishment for those who are faithless, because the same Greek term is used. So, and people who wonder about eternal punishment and say, I'm not sure I believe in it, they find themselves stuck. So first, the Bible is a book applicable to the living. It is not a roadmap that gives us every answer of what is beyond. It's supposed to be read for us to be able to see here and get an idea of what God is doing in his work among human beings. I do not know when ages and spans uh, begin or end, but we do know that they all have a beginning. Everything has a beginning, okay, except for God. So all his periods of time, all of his ages, all of his spans of times have beginnings. Therefore, they will have an end, talking about the spans and age of times. And I would suggest, I would call those periods of time or non-time ages. These are eons. The Greek term for eternal is ionos. And it's where we get eon from, and it's where we get an age from. And I would suggest that the term means exactly what it suggests. That in God's relationship to man, there is an age, an eon or a period of time in which he is laboring with us. There will come a time when that time or age or period or epoch of time will end. And for both the faithful and the faithless... Okay, the scripture is talking about the period of time or span of space when God is working with man. But that space and time will end. Now, as people will say, are you saying there's not a such thing as eternal life? I'm saying the scripture calls it an age-based life. It does not call it an eternal life. That's all I'm saying the Greek says. What comes after the age that God has worked with us to redeem us is unknown. Scripture doesn't tell us. So I support this view through a few passages. Quickly, let me say. Psalms 110 says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. So God said unto my Lord, Sit on my right hand until I make your enemies thy footstool. Until. 
sit here, Jesus, at the right hand of God until. Not forever. Did you, have you ever noticed scripture doesn't say Jesus sits by the right hand of God forever and ever and ever? He doesn't. He sits there for a period of time. That passage is quoted more in the Old Testament than any other Old Testament, in the New Testament, than any other Old Testament passage. Five times, I think, that passage is quoted. Then we come to a set of passages that speaks directly to what this is saying. And it's where Paul is talking about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And at verse 23, he says, Every man in his own order, talking about the resurrection, Christ the firstfruits. He's the first one up out of the grave. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. Okay? So this passage obviously makes his coming a very important event in the work of God among men. Then Paul adds that after this resurrection, that, that who are, those who are Christ's at his coming, after that, he says, then comes the end. That's what he says. When he, Jesus, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. This describes the end of an age, does it not? When Christ will put down all rule, all authority, and all power. Verse 25 says, For he must reign, for how long? Until. There's that until again. He must reign, Christ at the right hand of the Father, until he has put all enemies under his feet. This also describes the end of an age, right? Until he has put all enemies under his feet. That's a space of time. That's a, it's a period of space. And then verse 26, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. That's an enemy to Christ and to God, death. And that will be put under Christ's feet. Okay? Then Paul gives us one verse as kind of a sidebar explanation. He's like, and let me read it this way. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is obvious that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. What he says there is he's not included when I say all things. Then listen to this passage. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Okay? In light of these passages, I would suggest that when all things have been put under his feet, which I personally believe has happened, doesn't mean that uh, things bad don't happen, but he's in control. He's had the victory. They're all under his feet. That's, that's what that imagery suggests. Then the Son himself shall be subject unto him that put all things under his feet. I believe that has happened too, to tell you the truth. So God is now all in all. He, is, he has got what he wanted when he sent his son to earth. It has been done. And I would strongly suggest that these passages describe an end to that former age. Okay? And both the hellas age and the eternal or the age-based heaven that we have been talking about in Scripture that now God is all in all, all the victory has been had, everything has been won, and that we have entered into a new age, one that scripture does not define or describe for us completely. 
that scripture was all applicable to the house of Israel and the bringing in the Gentiles, but we don't get any kind of insight about what has happened now that God is all in all. That's the way I take it. I hope that helps, Carlos. Great seeking, my friend. Keep finding. We haven't done this in a while, but how about a moment from the Word? The Word. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. One of the things I've pushed over the years is that Christians ought to back the hell away from fighting against the world in the name of Christ. I mean, uh, while this suggestion is applicable to the warfare Christians make against everything in Jesus' name, you know, from burlesque to alcohol, to abortion, to homosexuality, to this, to that. Jesus doesn't want you to know. Jesus hates fags, all that stuff. I want to talk about something that will ruffle even probably people's feathers in the ministry. <laughs> you can you hear him running? Uh, and that's speaking evil of people put in office over us. For some reason, Christians today, and I hear it all the time, those who claim to love the Bible and to follow it believe they get a pass and have a right to rail on leaders that are in office over us. Uh, the Bible suggests something very different, however, you know. So let's start way back in the beginning, Exodus 22, 28. Moses is told by God, God says, Thou shalt not revile the gods, lowercase g-o-d-s. That was a judge or someone in rule over the people. And he says, Don't revile the gods. And then God adds, Nor curse the ruler of thy people. So all the way back in Exodus, God tells Moses, don't speak badly about those who are in office over you. Uh, why is it that whether it be online or over the pulpit, Christians today believe they have the right to speak evil, curse, particularly the, the left? Most of it happens in criticizing President Obama. His, it's a President Obama. You know, in Kennedy's day, it was President Kennedy. It was President Nixon, but now it's just Obama. I mean, President Obama, and, and I suppose there are some Christians who pick on Bush and Reagan and, and, and the right wing. We claim to love the Bible. We say we want to follow it, but its directions do not give us any justification for saying anything ill about our leaders. Let me give you some examples. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 10.20, curse not the king, and adds, no, not in your thoughts. That is radical living where we're just like, look, I'm going to just shut my mouth. I'm going to live my Christian life and I'm going to try to stop speaking evil about anything, especially the king. Luke wrote in Acts 23, 5, quoting Paul who said, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. And describing retro reprobates in the last days in Jude's time, he says, These filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. That dignities is related to men in, uh, in office. Echoing these sentiments, Peter, speaking of the fallen in his day, say, Chiefly, they walk after the flesh in lust of uncleanliness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed, and are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Same word. But the most direct, listen to this, an expanded opinion on the matter comes from Paul in Romans 13. This is what he says. And before, wait, before we go to that, Seth, I was invited by these guys to be on the show about Christian anarchy about three years ago. We did an inter interview over the radio and they broadcast it out. And they thought that I was about 
Christians rising up and fighting against government. And when the interview was done, they realized I'm about not doing anything about government, not even commenting on it. And I use these passages to support it. That interview did not end well. But anyway, Romans 13, 1, 6 says, Let every soul be subject unto higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God. And that they resist shall not receive unto them, excuse me, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers, listen, are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. What he's saying are rulers aren't against people who are doing good. Rulers are against people who do evil. And then Paul asks this rhetorical question, do you want not to be afraid of the power? He says, do that which is good and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Do you know when Paul wrote this? He wrote this in the time when the Jews were under Roman rule. You wanna see a despotic government? Look at the Romans. And he wrote that that when it came to rulers, give them honor, shut your mouth as Christians. And, and he goes on, wherefore you must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For for this cause pay you tribute also. That means pay your taxes. I know this is really, really compliant, but that's what it teaches. For they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. What is the proper non-American evangelical attitude toward all later leaders placed in place over us to respect them in Jesus name all of them uh, if you were in Nazi Germany and you were a Christian and you read the Bible you would say I'm not gonna speak evil against him I'm gonna just live my life I'm gonna do my Christian thing and share the light I'm not gonna speak evil against Hitler you can say that's radical I'm just taking it from the book if they weren't speaking evil against uh, Caesar and uh, Augustus Caesar and Nero, then, then I don't know how we do it. And yet today we justify it ad nauseum and then it divides us too because we're online picking on each other's uh, puppet government worker. People often respond saying, okay, I get what you're saying. As a Christian, we ought to keep Jesus out of the mix, but what about as an American citizen, you know? Do I have the right to speak out? Of course you do. As an American citizen, you have the right to say anything you want relative to uh, uh, your leaders, etc. But I want to know, uh, you know, are you first an American citizen or are you a Christian? Are you a sold out believer in Christ and follower of Christ or are you an American citizen? You choose what you want. You want dual citizenship? Have at it. You want to just be an American and then sort of a Christian? Fine. You want to be a Christian and an American? and do Go ahead. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're gonna shut the hell up when it comes to criticizing President Obama and the next person who comes in, whether it's President Trump or President Clinton, whoever it is, and we're gonna do the business that is not of this world and that's share love and share support and just let those people who are of this world worry about that stuff. All right, and with that, how about one more critical commentary? Like they're not all critical. Uh, one of the trappings found in brick and mortar religion today is the promotion of engineered charity and uh, to get on board and join the we're gonna save the world cause. 
it's happening all through the business world and um, corporate America. I mean, it's become the thing. If you start a business, you want to make sure that you're tapped into uh, saving the world and the needy. Uh, and what I mean by this specifically is when churches get behind programs and causes that claim to be focused on saving the world from poverty and starvation and economic devastation, or even giftless Christian kids at Christmas, you know, we got to get them gifts. And, and, and I understand the heart behind it, believe me. Uh, but I have long found those attempts that are out there to be empty causes in the long run. And upon examination, they actually often do more harm than good. Now, I realize everything I'm saying, most people hate. They don't agree with this. And, but I'm going to say it anyway. That being said, I see the need for churches and corporations to rally behind people and countries who have been devastated by earthquakes and tsunamis and famine, jump in there for a stopgap measure to help them. But when the circumstances in a country are more systemic and part of their overall picture historically for decades upon decades, I am firmly committed to the idea that the churches ought to get the heck away again unless they are a church in that country, okay? So in our campus uh, website, we describe what we're about and we say, we will not support sister churches or foreign causes. Our support goes to the local community. So I have a few reasons for this view and I wanna share them and uh, then we'll get to our message. Have you ever wondered why a local church here in America would choose to put up a poster of a bloated fly covered child at its entrance and give time during their services to, to promote some cause uh, seeking financial service. Why would they do that? You walk in, you see the poster hanging from the ceiling, you see a table to join up and sign up, and your heart goes out to that poor suffering child, and you think our church is behind saving the poor. Don't churches want the people attending their church to contribute to them directly financially? They certainly do. They absolutely do. So why would they allow some side cause to promote its thing and, and, and make it part of what the church is doing? It's because of what's called the skim. And churches all want their congregates to contribute financially, but not all people do. In fact, probably 20% do out of an 80% don't. So where some people in a congregation will refuse to support the church financially, uh, and yet they'll attend regularly and they'll take advantage of all the services and sermons and facilities, those very same congregates who resist donating to the church may see that child and say, you know, we've got to do something for that. And so they will uh, con they'll contribute to that worthwhile cause. Uh, what many people don't realize is a church will often gather up the donations for that to the starving child, and then they take their taste, as the, as the gangsters call it. They take their skim off the top, right? And then they forward the remainder to the cause that was uh, promoted, often taking a substantial portion for themselves. I've been to churches during Christmas that have dozens of those different causes, worldwide causes, all lined up. And you come in, it's Christmas time, and you're buying gifts at Walmart for your family, and you're living extravagantly, and you come to church on Sunday, and you're like, oh. You know, and so you're like, oh, we got to help this one, you got to help that one, and you start shelling out. And uh, there's, there's posters and tables and everything else. 
but all of them are getting skimmed in many churches. Not all of them, I would guess, but many churches right off the top. It's the same con game in the love offering business. The love offering business is a, is a con in most churches. This is how it works. Uh, the pastor invites a missionary or somebody who has a ministry to the Mormons or the outreach to Uganda or, or, or missionary efforts to the world to come and speak. And this ministry comes and the representative speaks. And then the pastor or somebody collects a love offering for their ministry. Well, let me tell you something. They take that love offering and they skim right off the top of it. And they decide to give a portion of the money to the ministry. And they'll go up and say, here, here's a $500 check from, from the, uh, our people. And the, and the guy says, thank you so much. You didn't need to do that. It was so generous of you. Not realizing they kept $2,500 themselves. It's the game of, that's why people will invite. Because they want to keep their attendance coming in. And they want to keep them entertained and, and informed. And they want to hold the love offering. And they also collect money off that. Um, in a way, these churches are acting as middlemen. Uh, uh, they aren't needed. It's not needed. Why would anyone allow their brick and mortar to serve as a wholesaler between the end product and themselves? Why not just give the money yourself directly to the empire? But you give it through the church, and the church then is able to skin. But this isn't the main reason why I uh, believers ought to back away from supporting overseas causes. The brass tax reasons Christians need to wake up and refuse to support what are called NGOs. Those are non-governmental organizations or operations known as NGOs. Is they have all set themselves up as under the auspices of we're serving the poor in different countries. But when the rubber meets the road, they typically hurt the country in need. And then they typically only serve themselves and their superstructure. Look back to the time, remember when Boomtown Rats singer Bob Geldorf uh, produced, orchestrated Feed the World? It was in 1984, uh, Band-Aid. It was the one of the first big ones, you know, and uh, very moving. All the celebrities got together. They sang about Africa, not knowing that, do they know it's Christmas time at all? You know, and that's, that's a touching message. Bono and Boy George and and George Michael singing their hearts out. You know, we're touched by that. Millions of dollars flowed in to help save people in a country that had maybe a dozen NGOs at that time. And the, in that song they sang uh, that, that according to the song in Africa, nothing ever grows, nor rain, nor rivers flow. That's, that's what they say. The problem, it's not true. Uh, things do grow in Africa. They have farmers. It does rain and uh, rivers do flow there. Uh, but the NGOs and the celebrities and the countries that support their NGOs with subsidies uh, and the churches take an approach to these struggling countries and what they say is, we are your parents. It's a parental approach. We, the United States and the NGO coming from the United States are your parents. Our farmers will provide you with products you be reliant upon us forever and uh, will provide for you. But indirectly, we're going to govern what you do. That's how it works. It sounds very cynical, but it's a form of colonialism. Uh, and at the base of it is control and power and neutering a vast human uh, and the natural resources that even Africa has. They have vast resources, but they aren't able to tap them because they are forever on the dole receiving a handout. This approach, which American churches have fully embraced now because it keeps them operating as, as having merit, 
uh, winds up causing very capable and intelligent African people, for example, one country, to rely on these imperialist donations of mama and papa, rather than equipping them, partnering with them, and teaching them how to survive on their own, what they do is they uh, teach them how to rely on an outside third-party source. Uh, so it was 1984 when Feed the World came out with Band-Aid, uh, hit the airwaves. Things have dramatically changed since then, but as a result of it. Instead of a dozen or two dozen NGOs in Africa, there are now thousands, thousands of NGO acting often in the name of Christ. And the end results, do they justify the means? They have been catastrophic and self-serving. And I'm not alone in this assessment. There have been research studies. There have been all sorts of stuff that prove what I'm saying. As I said, the influx of charitable contributions have served to neuter those people and in their own local industry and through their own efforts could not survive. The African entrepreneurs have a saying, we can't compete with free. We African farmers cannot compete with free. That's what they say. Let me give you an example with rice. Prior to Feed the World, this onslaught of saving the world materially by providing, Africa actually had farmers, and rice farmers. And they provided enough rice for every African person to have a bowl of rice a week. A bowl of rice a week. Now, that's not all they ate, but one meal, they would have a bowl of rice. That's how much the farmers were able to contribute, and it was a healthy start. They were going, and they were growing. It was getting better. Enter the American do-gooder Christian NGOs who said, Africa aren't eating enough rice. We have plenty of rice or corn or whatever product you want to mention over in America. We can offer our stuff to them. Our government will pay subsidies for us to take advantage of this and get it to them. We can make money. We can give it to them for free. It's a win-win. So what happened? Within about two or three years, Africans had three meals a day, seven days a week of rice. And people are saying it's a wonderful success. The problem is all the local farmers in Africa of, of, of rice farmers were put out of business. They couldn't compete with free. Then guess what happened? The NGOs from other countries who brought rice in said, you know, we focused on Africa long enough. Let's focus our, uh, let's focus our resources now on Ghana or on India or some other third, China, I don't know about rice, but let, let's focus our uh, rice efforts somewhere else needy. And so they do that and guess what happens? Now, people in Africa don't get rice any day of the week because all the farmers went out of business. Why? Because they can't compete with free. Some will say, well, at least the African people got to eat rice three meals a day, seven days a week for a period of time, but at what cost? Their independence, their motivation, their innovation, the loss of their farms. Not only does this American imperialism and colonialism live on, 32 years after the plea to feed the world and, and let them know it's Christmas time, nothing has changed. It's only gotten worse. I shouldn't say nothing has changed, changed because the NGOs have gotten wealthy. 
they have gotten very wealthy. They've become superstructures, multi-leveled, full businesses, and their businesses to bring in free product and deluge the African market or whatever market you want to talk about. And through their noble efforts, they get patted on the back as if they're doing God's work. It's a joke. Ironically, the Christian churches ought to have all along been going and using their resources to share Jesus. Share Jesus in those countries. That's what churches do. We share Jesus. We put our resources to feeding them the bread of life, not the bread. That is, that, that's been a mistake. Again, we can, we can participate locally in the people who are in dire need within the church for, for food and things. Locally, those churches can do the same. That's our job. I have to hand it to the LDS in this area. It's going to piss people off. And while they do seem stingy in their giving, I'm personally sickened by their temples and their $3 billion malls. Uh, they, do, they do have a, a system where their aim is to get people self-sufficient. They're not perfect at it, and they do have a lot of uh, uh, problems. But in my estimation, which is limited, uh, if every church started embracing that, we would start to see some things really change rather than this throwing bags of rice at people who then are just left like babies saying, help me, help me, and nothing ever changes. So with that disturbing opinion, uh, let's hit on our subject tonight, which is pre-existence part four. In LDS founder Joseph Smith's day, the notion of the origins of spirits was, remember this is 18, 20, 30, was that every person's spirit was created ex nihilo, uh, out of nothing. A teaching that is known as traducianism uh, suggests that what happened was God, when he created Adam, he breathed into him his breath. That spirit similarly is passed down through Adam and Eve and all their progeny by virtue of procreation. And that God kickstarted it with his breath through Adam. And from that point forward, that is where the spirit of a human being comes from. It's known as traducianism. Uh, so the breath of life, God started, but it keeps multiplying through the races. There were, however, Christian believers in Joseph Smith's day who were known as pre-existentists. And uh, in fact, there was a Presbyterian magazine that said, if we must speculate and form a theory on this subject, talking about the, where souls and spirits come from, the safest and most rational is to suppose that all souls were created at the beginning of the world, that they remain in a quiescent state till the bodies which they are to inhabit are formed. So that was uh, from the Westminster uh, uh, Catechism, and it said, listen, if God finished his work of creation, then all the souls must have been warehoused somewhere and remain. That would be considered still in Christianity somewhat of a pre-existent state. Lorenzo Dow, he's a Methodist preacher, he's speaking of the idea that a spirit of a human was created uh, when it was born, uh, said the following in 1804. He said, I deny it. He said, for the Bible says that God finished the heavens and the earth and all the host of them. Again, the heavens and the earth and all the host of them. That's what the Bible says. And then God rested from the works of creation on the seventh day. He has not been at work creating souls ever since. 
Now, that's really interesting. That's, that's, uh, that's the opinion of Dow, Lorenzo Dow, and he says, listen, if he finished the creation of all souls um, of heaven and of earth in the early part of the creation, the Genesis account, and he's resting now, that means he's not continuing to create them, and that means they exist. Dow agreed with the writings of the apocryphal books, which we mentioned last week, and he believed that the bodies were laid up in a storehouse in heaven in a state of happiness until their mortal bodies were prepared. And then, you know, the foreman came into the storehouse and said, Hey, Mike Smith's being born now! And they pull that spirit out and they throw it down to earth and it fills Mike Smith's baby body. And that, that's kind of the imagery you got from these Christian leaders. So at the end of the day, and in my estimation, Jesus himself made the teaching of a premortal existence clearly faulty when he said that he was from above and those around him were from below. All right? The ideal of traditionism seems to best describe our origin that God breathed into Adam, kick-started the human race, and then through progeny, that is where life comes from until we're born again and the Spirit of God comes in and animates us. And uh, I, I think I appeal or agree with traditionism more than anything else. Uh, if God did create all the souls or all the spirits of human beings and kept them in a storehouse, they may not have been located up above. So Jesus saying, I am from above and you are from beneath may not have been wrong. Maybe they were warehoused here on earth somewhere or somewhere in the vicinity and not from heaven. So Jesus could honestly say, I'm from above, you're from beneath and be right. Like many things in the Mormon Christian debate, we've explored this to show the Mormons have been dogmatic of our teaching of the preexistence is absolutely correct. And the Christians of our stance that there's no preexistence whatsoever is absolutely correct. And we can see that there is some place for us to give a little and in the end, I don't see a person's belief or disbelief in a premortal existence as negating them being a Christian. I mean, if someone says Jesus is my Lord and Savior, I, I, I trust him, I seek him, he's how I get to God after this life, by his grace, through faith, whatever, I accept that if they have some of these different beliefs. And I think that's what we're working for, is to get people to kind of let go of the things that are debatable and give each other a break. Next week, Mother in Heaven pre-mortal existence. And let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. Uh, we're going to come back after this. the operators are clearing the calls. We have Daniel in Indiana and Michael in Cincinnati. Stay with us. Let's go to Daniel in Indiana on line two. Daniel, you're on Heart of the Matter. What's up? 
Not too much. I got to put you on mute real quick, though. You got to do what? I got to mute you real quick, Sean. Mute me then. I did. So I'm a member of the church, and I believe that as members of the church, we're ministers of grace. And when I say the church, I mean the LDS church. I understand that you were a part of the church for 40 years, and uh, you'd be surprised how you came through, and I, I learned about you. I didn't initially know you were uh, a previous Mormon in the church, and I, I, I'm just kind of confused. What exactly prompted you to not understand that the church was true from a believer's eyes? What made you become a non-believer of the Mormon faith? Am I off mute? What's that? Did you mute me? I did not mute you. Oh, okay. I did mute you, I guess. Sorry. I didn't mute you on the phone, but oh. on my YouTube. What it was, Daniel, um, is, uh, I mean, everybody's story is different, but for me, yeah. I was a sinner. I was uh, an egregious sinner uh, inwardly and then ultimately outwardly. And I tried everything to not be a sinner by following the Mormon teachings and way and doctrines. And I was not a sinner on my mission. I was a very valiant servant. I married in the temple. I was not a sinner when I married in the temple. And I tried to do everything right, but the problem was nothing changed my heart. Nothing. And I tried. I sought and I tried. So ultimately, uh, I heard a quote today and it said something like, the only thing that you have to do when you're a, uh, 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 is to know that you need God's grace when you're a Christian. The only thing you have to do is know or realize you need God's grace. And when I realized that, that's when I changed and that's when my heart changed and I was able over the course of time and his spirit to overcome my sin nature. Well, I think we all seek to overcome and there's only one way to do that and that's to lose our lives through Christ. And it, it sounds like you've got your focus, you know, it may be, it, it, it may be you know, upon those things that do bring us that little bit of tension, but... If we let go of that and just let people, you know, show their faith, I think there's a lot of important things that can be accomplished in the world. I'm actually reading a book right now that you highlighted uh, some information about. I don't know if you've read this book or not, but it's about the dawning of a brighter day for the nation of black Africa. And uh, there are a lot of untapped resources there. So I, I appreciate uh, your feelings and needing to get things done there. And it has to be through the churches. So, yeah. Yeah. God bless you, sir, and uh, I hope you find your way home. Well, I hope so, too. The roads can get dangerous going up to Park City, so... Uh, sure. Appreciate it, man. Take care. Hey. Bye-bye. Yeah, I'll be listening. All right. That was interesting, because in the end, he really didn't say much. Uh, he really didn't. If you listened to him, it, I, I mean, I gratefully called, and, but he didn't say anything. So uh, let's go to Michael in Cincinnati, Ohio. Michael, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. How are you tonight, buddy? Good. How you doing? Fine. Hey, listen, Dad. Uh, I asked your girl to answer the phone. Which is, you were talking about the Trinity? Yeah. Okay. The Word is on the Bible. The Word but is... Explained it, but someone explained it to me. It's like water, there's ice, <laughs> then steam. And then when... When the steam evaporates, it gives it to spirit, and when the ice melts, it gives back to water. And it's a mystery what it is. You know, uh, the Trinitarians will reject that definition. They say it's not correct. Uh, that really is more of a form of modalism than it is of the Trinity. Uh, 
and so they would the, the Trinitarians don't like that uh, water ice steam um, e explanation, Michael. Yeah, it's in the Bible. It's not in the Second John. But it's in the Bible. I have read it somewhere. Yeah. It's in there. Hey, buddy, I love your show. I'm going to catch you on YouTube. I don't know if you're on the radio station around in Cincinnati or not. You, so. Hey, you've had throat surgery. Yes. Well, you yes. relax those vocal cords, and we'll talk again. All right. Thanks, guy. All right, my brother. Thanks Thank for you. watching. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, we have... Uh, I'm not LDS, so uh, I was born in Poland. I came to Canada, Catholic all my life. What I want to ask you is how do Mormons believe in something that is clearly false? To begin with the basics, there's no genetic tie to Semitic genes in those found in North America. And clearly there's no Nephi empire, nor horses that they talked about in their book. How can someone be so blind? Is it fear of no longer belonging to something? I really enjoy your shows. Uh, the LDS claim that the discoveries for the Book of Mormon have not yet happened. That it's only since 1830 that the book came out, and therefore it's really only been, uh, what is it, 100 and some odd years that, that we've been searching. And so that's not enough time. You know, after maybe 500 years, we will find evidence of the Book of Mormon, but they, they discount that, that we have advanced machinery and, and echo systems and sound sonar systems and, and all kinds of stuff to find stuff. So I think that's a little bit of a, a cop-out. They say the Book of Mormon is known spiritually. It's not known by its material facts. It can't be known by its material facts. Uh, and, but these are the justifications they give. In the end, you know, really we've said this all along, and this is not just applied to Mormons. It's applied to religious people, and it's, it's, uh, it's all through religion, and that is people believe what they want to believe. Seekers will discount as they go and find information that challenges or discounts their former beliefs, and they'll continue to let go, and it's not a very comfortable place to be for many, so they don't do that. What they do is they find what they want to believe, what works for them, what they believe is true, and they stop right there. And, and so uh, it's true for everybody to some extent or another, and the Mormons are really no different. The Mormons are kind of an extreme case because they have this hyperinflated fantasy fictional story that they tell, and it's, it is amazing to the outside world that someone could believe the things that are said in their history about, the, about their history, and yet the LDS are just an extreme example of people believing what they want to believe. They literally just, this, I remember when I was uh, coming out of a restaurant years ago, and uh, a woman recognized me, and I, she, she kind of looked at me and I said, oh, you LDS? And she said, yeah, and I said, hey, you know, I just, and she goes, I don't want to know, I don't want to know, I don't want to know. That's what she did. And it's because we don't like things that are going to upset the apple cart. Talking to a friend this morning, it's like those puzzles you put together and then people will like laminate them and glue them and frame them. It's like that's what they've done. They've put all the pieces together. They have the picture of what is truth written on that puzzle. They laminate it. They paste it. They frame it. And that's it. Don't try to pull any of those pieces out. If you do, you've disturbed their worldview. And that's kind of how we're built. We're wired. But Jesus said, listen, the Father seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. 
and you can't do that if you're going to close your eyes to anything after you think you've gotten it. Uh, let's go to uh, Rick in South Jordan, Utah, and then Dave in Riverton, Utah. Rick, you're on Heart of the Matter. Mr. McLean. What's up? Hey, uh, hold on. Let me put my cigar and beer down so I can talk to you. Thank you so much. You're looking great, by the way. You know, with, well, thank uh, you. Facial hair really doesn't do much for a guy. Well, you know, yeah. <laughs> so what's up? Hey, the reason I'm calling is I just wanted to mention, you know, you were talking about the uh, charitable giving and the churches, and I just wanted to make the comment, you know, one that when I, after I left Mormonism and, and went into evangelicalism for a while, <laughs> yeah, one of the things that really turned me off was the constant haranguing for, you know, Honduras and... <laughs> Uh, you know, all these places all over the world. And not that they, there isn't a need. Right. But I, I also just kept thinking, well, what about the needs right here? Yeah. You know, and why aren't we serving our own community? Yeah. And um, so I just I just find it interesting, and, you know, as we outreach, you know, we're outreaching the wrong things. And the thing I find interesting is, for you know, I see these evangelicals, we always say, I'm going to serve, a, you know, to me, to me, it's a status thing when they go and spend. I'm going two weeks to, you know, Honduras or Guatemala or whatever. It ends up being like a status symbol as opposed to, you know, a loving thing. Yeah. You know, you know, we talk about they have their rewards. Well, that, yeah. I think that's their reward. So. Yeah, you know, isn't it interesting? They, <laughs> the, the, the whole there's a whole study of the fallacy of mission trips, foreign mission trips that, you know, these guys go and ask you to fund them and help me go, and they go on a two-week trip where, you know, probably a good percentage of that time they're sightseeing, you know, right. and they're living off, it's, it's, and, and it's Christians who have studied it and said, don't do it anymore. I don't know why we don't localize what we do and have every church localized, and then if we want to get involved with training or partnering with people to help them learn skills, fine. But I, I agree with you, Rick, completely. And I have a heart for the Hondurans. There you go. Thanks, brother. Love you, brother. Love you too. See ya. Bye. Before we go to Dave in Riverton, Mr. Blabby says, Hi, Sean. Do you think that Christians speak in tongues today, or was that finished after 70 AD? Don't know what to make of babbling Christians say in tongues. Tongues, uh, from my understanding of Scripture in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, is not for believers. The speaking of tongues, in my estimation from reading the scripture, is when one person is gifted with the ability to speak another known language and another person who can interpret that language says what they have said to the amazement of non-believers. That is what the gifts of tongue, tongues are. Okay? It is not to be done in the church. Paul said, I'd rather speak 10,000 words of my own tongue. You know, it's not to be done inside of a church. That is a misappropriation according to Scripture. But still, it's done. Now, there's also the thing that people talk about uh, praying with the tongue of angels. I have no problem with that personal thing. If that happens with someone overwhelmed by the Spirit and they're praying in tongues, that's a personal, private thing. But the speaking in tongues in a public place is definitely a witness for non-believers to be blown away by the fact that suddenly Sean McCraney, who cannot speak a word of Swingali, 
speaks it and somebody else interprets it and somebody who speaks Bengali says, that's right. That's what it is for the convincing of non-believers. Whether it happens today or not, it's up in the air. Don't know. Let's go to Dave in Riverton, Utah. Dave, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good, good, good. Just want to talk a little politics, if that's okay. Yes. <laughs> hey, uh, just kind of, first of all, I love your show. I love that you're there. I appreciate you. Everybody in my house knows if it's Tuesday 8 tonight, leave me alone because I'm at church. So appreciate you. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm just curious. My question is just kind of, did you, did you mean to do this or did it just work out that way where you started off talking about, uh, you know, respect for our leaders? And that's all cool. I agree with that. We should always treat an authority figure with the respect instead of Obama. It should be President Obama. I get that. And that's good. But after going on and the NGO stuff and the We Are the World stuff, you kind of started into this dissertation on the importance of free market capitalism. And I'm just wondering if that was something you intended to do or if it just worked out that way. No, I didn't intend to do it because actually I lean more uh, in a different direction. But uh, uh -huh. I, I think it just happened that way because that's the result of what we've done with all these NGOs. So if I was uh, preaching I, free market yeah, capitalism, I, it was inadvertent. Yeah, well, I agree with you. I just, yeah, whenever you help somebody that's capable of helping themselves, you're hurting them. And that's just yeah. kind of what I believe politically. So I think we're on the same page. If I'm going to be living different boats or whatever. So Yeah, yeah no, I, I didn't mean to preach that. If it, can't, it did sound that way, but that's just what the, seems like the result was. But that's a great insight. I appreciate you catching it. All right. Hey, take care, bud. Thanks, brother. See ya. Bye. Bye. Uh, let me see if I can get to a really good one here. Uh, we get so many emails from people saying, I've left the church. My wife's still a member. My daughter joined the church. I'm not a member. I'm engaged to a girl who's a member. How do I handle sharing with these people I love? And, it, and I, have four, I have three emails here that are specifically to that. And just let me wrap up the show with this. Every case is individual. There are people who want to know the truth and they'll bring it up. If they don't bring it up, in all probability, you are causing a division to come, especially if they've been in the Mormon church for a long time or if they've converted because their boyfriend is a member and they're going to get married. Walls go up. People don't want to hear that stuff. In the case of walls going up, people not wanting to hear it and you're trying to reach them with truth, the best thing I think you can do is pray, be Jesus to them, don't preach or share things about their faith with them unless solicited. If it's solicited, then you can say, well, and take a real casual approach. You know, well, what is it, if, if it just comes out, what is it you have so much against? And then really have a soft answer of, I just don't think Jesus is this focal point or spiritual rebirth, something like that. Be Jesus. And I have an email here. Someone says, what did you do with your family? I have three daughters, still LDS, wife still LDS. When I came out, they were, they were out for a long time. And what I did was contrary to what everyone said I needed to do. I would drive them to seminary. I would take them to steak dances. I would, I would go and take them to church if my wife had to do something else. I would support them in their attendance. And I had no problem whatsoever keeping my mouth shut. And if my daughters came out of seminary and said, my seminary teacher said this, what do you think? Then I'd just catch, well, you know, I think that the seminary teacher doesn't understand this and just teach. 
in love. Support, but teach in love when asked. It's the best way. I do not believe for a second that God wants marriages ending over religion. I do not believe it. And I think that that's religion that's getting involved when that happens. I think the Mormon church is guilty of it. And sometimes Christians will say, I'm leaving my husband. You know, I became a Christian and, and he won't. He's Mormon. And, and so God wants me to not be unequally, all that junk. He wants love. It's through love that you're going to win. Final thing, Marie Conlon says, okay, Sean, my question, why for thousands of years before Christ, were there other pagan religious folks that believed in random gods who had the same exact story of Jesus Christ before his story? It wasn't the same exact story if you're talking about uh, Gilgamesh and you're talking about some of the other uh, fables and myths. They weren't, all, they weren't exact, but there are similarities. Uh, could it be that they were uh, 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 giving the narrative before it came out? Could it be that they were inspired by something to bring up a false Jesus before the real one arrived? I don't know. There are similar stories. There's flood stories. All over the world, there's flood stories. There are Messiah stories that many cultures have. Uh, but I think whenever you're going to have the real McCoy, you're going to have counterfeits. And these counterfeits just happen to come before Christ. And when Christ came, there were counterfeits after him. I just think that the counterfeits are always going to exist. That's how I would see it. Marie, I hope that helps to some extent. Join us next week as we talk about Mother in Heaven here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light filled monkeys start.